this, here we go. Paul turns his attention. Well, I don't have to yell anymore. That's kind of nice. Paul turns his attention to chapter 12 for practical church living and how we are to live day to day. And that's where we're going to be going the next few weeks. But I'm excited to be able to look at chapter 11 and to conclude uh, these final words that Paul looks at in terms of the plan of salvation. And so if you would, stand with me as we read chapter 11 together and honor God's Word. Chapter 11 is a rather long. We're going to read the whole thing. So if in the middle of this you need to, to take a seat and take a rest, that's fine. But let's begin together. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I ask, then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what has God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, ob elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your grace. Lord, that undeserved favor that you have shown us time and again. We thank you for your mercy that you looked upon us who were guilty and you made a way through the cross and through the resurrection. We thank you for your plan of salvation that even when all seems lost, that you are at work for your people and for your namesake. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our ears to let us hear, that you would open us our, our eyes, that we may see the truth of your word, that we may respond to it, that we may carry it out from this place. Lord, for our, our blessing and for your glory. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We did not do this last week, but it is good for us as we come to Romans, any chapter in Romans, to understand how we got there, especially chapter 11, seeing as how it closes out these major areas, these major sections of this letter. And so we go back, uh, and we're going to do this quickly, but we go back to some review as we have done in the past. First, we remember that in the beginning of the letter, in chapters 1 through part of chapter 3, Paul uses those, that, that passage to talk about how we are justly convicted and rightly sentenced. In other words, we all are guilty. All of us have looked at God, the creator of all things, and said, I can do life better. And in doing so, we have chosen to reject him and to break his holy and eternal law. And so we stand guilty. And as those that are found guilty, then we are also rightly sentenced according to the law of God. And the law of God says that if you break the law, that the result is death. And not just physical death, but 
death of the soul, separation from the soul from God in a place called hell. And so we understand that those two things to be true, and those are weighty things. Those are not things that we take lightly. And as we read through those early chapters, there's a weight that comes upon us, and yet that makes even more glorious what he says in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he says, but now, and he helps us to understand that those that place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be justified. Where we cannot save ourselves, we cannot take our guilty, uh, our guilty sentence and make that innocent, Jesus can because he pays the price for us on the cross. And we see the receipt of that, the seal of that in the resurrection. And so Paul talks about this great thing that God has done and has now offered to us that he allows for us, if we will trust him, if we will follow him, to experience grace, to experience mercy, to experience salvation. And so Paul continues on in the letter to then begin to rejoice in the new uh, reality that we live in, no longer guilty and deserving death, but now innocent and deserving blessing. Now we have peace with God. Not just a feeling, but a status. Now we are secure in our grace. We can never lose it. We rejoice in our hope in the things to come. And we can even rejoice in the sufferings of this life because we know who is in control. And so Paul begins this chapter by, by looking at all of these things, and he continues on. Because not only, not, we haven't just been saved that we may rejoice in these things, but we have been saved so that we can live differently. And we use the example that when a child is born, there's great excitement over that. But if the child does not grow and develop into an adult, then there's sadness there. There's an expectation that we would grow and develop. The same is true of our Christian faith. God doesn't save us so then we can just walk around saying, I've been saved and not do anything with it. We have been saved that we may grow and mature in our faith and become adults in the faith that we may contribute to the kingdom in a process called sanctification as God molds us into his image. And so Paul begins the letter, these first eight chapters, by helping us to see this process going from our need for, need for salvation to what happens after salvation. And then he backs up a little bit in chapters 9 and 10, and he gives us kind of a big picture for God's plan of salvation. And he addresses that mainly to the Israelites, and he reminds us that salvation started with them, with his choosing of that nation, and how God has been working that out through time. And as he does that, as he shows us that, that plan, he breaks it down into different sections. Chapter 9 looks at the sovereignty of God in salvation, how God will have grace on whom he will have grace on, that he'll show mercy to whomever he chooses to show mercy to. So we see the sovereignty of God. But at the same time, chapter 10, which we looked at last week briefly, shows the responsibility of humans. We all have a choice as individuals. And, and we all have a will, a free will to decide, are we going to embrace him or are we going to reject him? And so we looked at that a little bit last week. And then chapter 11 begins to tie these things together a little bit. If you look closely at chapter 11 and study it carefully, you begin to see how there, these different elements come into, come into a relationship together in, in salvation. How there is both the sovereignty of God in his choosing, but also how there is the ability of humanity to say yes or no to his grace. And so we see these things working together. 
But all of this, everything we see in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we have to understand them from what we see at the beginning of chapter 9. And that is Paul's heart for those that are his kinsmen, for the people of Israel. Paul's heart in chapters in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is that they would know salvation. And really, as we read these verses here in just a moment, I want you to understand this isn't just Paul's heart. This is him mirroring what is the heart of Jesus Christ, that Christ desires that everyone know him, that everyone be saved. And that comes out in his servant Paul in these words. Go back with me to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We see this continued in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not just some philosophical or theology uh, brain teaser, theological brain teaser. They are born out of heart and a desire to see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior by faith. When we talked about this in chapter 9, we mentioned that there are two questions then that are borne out. The first question is, has God's word failed? Has God's word failed? And the answer that Paul shows us in chapter 9 is absolutely not. It hasn't failed. That God's word continues to go out and to impact the lives of individuals and to save them and to bring them closer to him. And so the second question then is, will any be saved? And specifically, Paul is asking this question about the nation of Israel. He's asking his readers this, this kind of rhetorical question that he's going to answer himself. Will any Israelites be saved? Though many of them have rejected the word, will any of them be saved? And that's where we come to chapter 11 as he begins to answer this question. Chapter 11, he answers, he, so chapter 11, he even starts it, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? Will any of them be saved? And his answer is, absolutely, they will be saved. No, God has not rejected his people. He still desires for them to come to him. Look what he says there in the answer. He says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that Scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. He says, absolutely, they will, that some will be saved. Absolutely, there will be those that come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I am the evidence of that. Paul says, I myself have been saved. I'm 
I am an Israelite, and I am not just an Israelite. I'm born from, like, the, the special tribe that everybody wants to be a part of. I am proof of what God is doing, and not just I, but even Scripture helps us to understand that God is constantly at work in the background, pulling people to himself, and he uses the example of Elijah from the Old Testament. And Elijah's plea, Elijah feels like he's alone. He feels like there's nobody else that worships God anymore. And he says, and God's response to that is, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. There are people that are close to me, that are faithful to me, that I have kept. Keep the faith, Elijah. Keep the faith. Paul's saying the same thing. He says, God's been at work and he's continuing to save some. Now, from this point on, I need to call a timeout and just uh, make sure that we understand something. We're on the same page. Because a lot of the things that Paul's going to say after this, if we apply them to an individual, don't make a lot of sense. If we say things like, if you stay in the kindness of God, that you will remain in his kindness, and you can be cut off, and those kinds of things, they don't, make, they don't fit if we apply them to an individual. And so we need to understand that as we look at chapter 11, from this point on, he is speaking in grand generalities. That he speak, When he speaks of Israel, he is speaking of them as a whole, not as individuals. When he says that, all, that they've been lost, well, not all of them have been lost. He's already shown that. When he says that they have, they have stumbled, not all of them have stumbled. The same with the Gentiles. When he talks about the Gentiles being saved, not all Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have been saved. Just many of them in a way that had not happened in the Old Testament have. So we need to understand that, that idea of generalities. Okay, moving on. After he says this thing about absolutely, that some will be saved, he acknowledges a difficult truth. After he talks about that some have been saved, that some continue to be saved, Paul acknowledges a difficult truth for him. Remember what he says in 9? He says that he has great sorrow and great anguish. Why? Because there are many in Israel who have denied Jesus Christ as their Savior, and in doing so, they have denied God. And Paul says, that breaks my heart, because he knows what the result is. We talked about earlier, the consequence, the right consequence of denying God is death, and not just temporary death, but eternal death. And so Paul is heartbroken because he has to deal with this reality that Israel has rejected God. Look at verse 7. It says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel obtained to fa obta failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? Well, they were seeking what many of us seek. They were seeking purpose for life, meaning for life. But ultimately, through the law of the Old Testament, they were seeking salvation. They were seeking a relationship with God. They were seeking eternity. But they failed to find it because they had tried to do it on their own power. They had tried to do it by just being good. They had tried to do it by just being religious and denying faith in Jesus Christ. In doing so, something even more heartbreaking happens. God gives them over to their desires. Look what it says following verse 7 and verse 8. It says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
the scariest thing about all of chapter 11 is that God at times chooses to harden the hearts of those that have rejected him. That at times when we look at God and say, I'm done, I don't need you, I don't want you anymore, I am walking away from you, that God's response is, okay. That's terrifying. And not not does he just say, okay, if that's what you want, but then he sets it in concrete. He sets that decision in concrete and says, okay, you made that decision, then we're done. And we see this throughout Scripture. Probably the most famous example is Pharaoh. Pharaoh rejects God. He he thinks that he is God. And what does it say when they get to that place where Moses is coming to Pharaoh? And again, it says that God hardened his heart. There was a concrete, there was a setting of the soul that Pharaoh could not receive grace beyond that point. Now, we don't know as individuals. Remember, we're speaking in generalities here. Paul says that this is what has happened to Israel for a short time, that there has been a hardening, a partial hardening of the nation's heart where many of them have rejected him and he has allowed them to go that way and he has blinded their eyes. We don't know as individuals. We don't know where that point is. We don't. For some of us, he allows us to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. For some of us, at least what we see in Scripture, there comes a point when you reject him enough that God says, okay. So don't think that you'll have a thousand opportunities. Don't think that you'll have tomorrow. We must understand that our decision about what we're going to do with Christ needs to be made today. Or God will give us over to our own decision and our own desire. This is a heartbreaking thing. No wonder Paul has great sorrow and great anguish. I sometimes question as I I think about these things and I pray, Lord, put that great sorrow and that great anguish in my heart as well. As I think about family members that don't know him, that have rejected him, as I think about those in my community that I rub shoulders with here in Vandalia that don't know him, Would I have that same sorrow and that same anguish to understand what God desires for them and yet what they are doing to themselves? Would I desire to pray, God, don't harden their hearts. God, open their eyes. Open their ears that they may hear. At the same time, as we think about this heartbreaking truth that Israel has rejected God and that God has given them over to their desires and hardened their hearts, We must also understand that his mercy is still at work. Starting in verse 11, it says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, what Paul is saying there is, have they temporarily rejected God so that the nation of Israel will never recover? The answer is no. No, they have stumbled for a moment. The nation of Israel has rejected God for a time, but there is coming a moment when they will come back to him He says, by no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
Jump down to verse 15 with me. For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul says there are two things going on in the background that if we're not careful, we'll miss. He says, yes, Israel has rejected God. Yes, God has hardened their heart. But that has not ended the plan and the promises of God towards that nation or towards those that he would adopt into that nation. There are two things going on. One, though Israel has rejected God, and for this time God has hardened their hearts towards him, he has opened the door to non-Israelites, non-Jewish people, in a way that he never has before. When you look at the Old Testament, what do you see? It's the people of God, Israel, serving God over and over again and, and having this relationship with him. And it's very few are the exceptions where you see some incredible individuals like Rahab and, and Ruth who come to know God from outside of the people of Israel. But it's not broad. You don't see that in Mass. Now, in the New Testament, since the cross and the resurrection, you do. Now we see non-Jewish people accepting God all the time and having a relationship with Him and glorifying Him and worshiping Him in an incredible way. We see the Word of God, not just in Israel, but it has spread all over the world, even to the United States. You think about when Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, you do understand, right, that we're the ends of the earth. We like to look at that and think that we're Jerusalem and we're, and some of that's true. But for them, we were the ends of the earth. Can you imagine Peter going, there's a whole nother continent? What are you talking about? And yet God's word has worked out in such a way. And, in, and there's a miraculous thing that has happened that now we get to hear the gospel in our language that God has done this wonderful thing for us. His work is still happening. But it's not just the work towards us. He is still doing a work in the nation of Israel as well. What does it say there? It says that he's doing this work among the Gentiles so that he may make Israel jealous. Right? He may make Israel jealous. He wants Israel to recognize, wait a minute, they, they have a relationship with God. We're, we're supposed to have that. We're the people of God. We're supposed to be his chosen ones. Why do we not? What has gone wrong here? Paul says that one day that will come to fruition and there will be an awakening and they will be included back into the, the relationship and into the family of God and they will know him again as they once did. And he says, and he says something interesting. He says, for if their rejection, this temporary hardening, means reconciliation of the world. In other words, if this temporary hardening of Israel means that the Gentiles have gotten to hear the gospel and respond to it, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What does he mean by that? He means that when this awakening happens, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself because this is the end of chapter 11, but when the awakening happens and the people of God, the Jews, begin to come in mass to know him as their Savior through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says, be ready because that is the beginning of the resurrection. 
that is the beginning of the return of Christ. And Paul is like all about that. He's all about looking forward to that moment when no longer will we be going through the suffering and, and the, this life, but one day that Christ will return and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will stand in his glory forever. And so Paul says, wait for this moment. Wait for the awakening. You think that this is awesome now, what God is doing? Wait till this happens. And then we get excited about things. Then we can begin to praise him. His mercy is still at work. Paul illustrates this point by talking about the olive tree of grace. This next huge section from 17 through verse 24, he lays out this illustration of the olive tree of grace. And we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I do want to just make sure that we understand kind of what's going on because it's really an amazing picture of what God has done in our lives. We see first the root. This is God and his promises to us. This is, the root is God and his promises to his people. And we can go back, and we're not going to do it this morning, but you can go back and read the promises that God makes to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob Promises to save them, promises to restore them, promises to give them a home. Those promises are all still real and active, and they amount not just to the nation of Israel, but they are to all that would he would call his own. And so the root, just as we talked about with the kids, this root and these promises bring nourishment to his people and they bring blessing to the people that they themselves may bear fruit that then blesses others. And so we, we see the, that picture and then we see the natural branches. This is Israel. God's natural mode, the way that he has done things historically, is to, to enact and to fulfill these promises through the people of Israel. They have been the branches. They have been the ones to show off his glory. Since, since Abraham, thousands of years ago, it has been them. That's been his normal mode. And yet what has happened, because they have rejected him, is that they have been stripped off. These natural branches have been pruned. They've been taken off so that something else can go in their place. And that something else, for a time, are the wild branches. And these are the Gentiles. These are the, Jew, the non-Jewish folks. They're you and I. That for a time, God has taken us and he has grafted us into the tree of life. He has grafted us into the family of God that we too may know these promises, that we too may know these blessings both here and forever. It's interesting, by the way, that he talks about an olive tree and then that being the, the grafting. This was a practice that was done in Roman times that they would take an old tree that had started to bear less fruit and they believed that if they would take a wild olive shoot and that they would graft that into the tree, that it would reinvigorate the tree so that it would produce olives in abundance again. It was an odd practice. Folks of that day would even comment, like it was kind of a superstition in a way, that it was something odd, it was different. It, whether it worked was really kind of up to question. And Paul uses that picture here to say the same thing, only he says that it is effective. He's saying that this olive, this olive tree, that though it is old and ancient, 
that it is being reinvigorated by the addition of these wild olive shoots, that God is using those so that the tree may bear much more fruit than what it did before. And so this picture is intentional. But what does he say? He says that the wild branches, us, while we've been added and have been able to experience life because of it, that someday that the natural branches, Israel, are going to be added back in. And this is what we just talked about a moment ago. That these natural branches are going to be added back in. And then you get the full picture of the kingdom of God, that it's not just one type of person or one culture, but that it is this beautiful, mara- or uh, this beautiful, um, um, the word missing right now in my brain, but it's this beautiful picture of all of these different cultures and all of these different backgrounds, all of these different colors that come together. Paul concludes his, this passage in chapter 11 by talking about this bigger picture of the kingdom and the God's plan for salvation. He starts off, he says, verse 26, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by, that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. The truth of the matter is, big picture, that we have all been disobedient. That we've all looked at God and we've rejected Him at different times. But even in that disobedience, God has been faithful. God has been faithful. God has not changed. Though we have walked away from Him at different times, though we have rejected Him at different times, though the nation of Israel, once His people and close to Him, have turned their backs on Him and have rejected the path of salvation through Jesus Christ, God has been faithful. He stands there waiting. Look at what He says there at the end of chapter 10. It says in verse 21, but Israel, but of Israel, He says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God is waiting. And He extends His hand open with a gift of grace and salvation. And He waits. He waits that someone may come. He has been faithful. Not only has He been faithful, but God is working out His plan of mercy. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. His desire, his plan is for you and I and so many others to come and to know him in a personal relationship that we may be forgiven of our sin, that we may be forgiven of our rebellion, that we may live life abundantly forever. And He is working out that plan. For those of you that 
have already accepted that, I want you to think, to, to take this chapter 11 and, and ponder how his work of grace has happened in your life, that he has spared you time and again, and that he has brought you to this place at this time, that you may know the gospel, that you may serve in the kingdom so that others may know as well. But before that, he spared your mom and dad so that they may have you. Before that, he spared your grandparents and your great-grandparents. At some point, he moved people around to get you to this place that he has worked through missionaries to bring the gospel here, that he has worked through others who gave of their life, that you may be able to read the, the word of God in English, that he has worked through individuals and nations and kings and queens that he has worked throughout all of human history to show grace and mercy. Can we wonder at that? Can we worship at that? Can we be thankful for that? Friend, if you are here and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know that you don't have a relationship with him. You don't know what happens after death. Can you ponder for a moment that you are not here by accident, but that he has put you here, that he has done all of those same things for you, and he is waiting with open hands? Finally, we see amid our disobedience that God is leading us to eternity, that this grand plan that he has for his people through his mercy and his grace leads us himself forever. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For he who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.